Okay, the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. I am going to have it on the screen, but I would like you to stand. It has been a lot of up and down today. Uh, would you stand and read with me? We're going to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 26. Um, I don't know about you. I have really loved being in Timothy. I don't know why, but just for some reason, Paul's words to Timothy in the first and second books both have been powerful. So in verse 23, would you read with me? Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, but because, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance and leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. So you may be seated. Hey, and I forgot to tell you just before we jump into Paul, uh, I think it's Friday night at the press room. Tracy Whipple is going to be doing... It's the Art Walk, and at the press room, we're going to be hosting Tracy Whipple with her really amazing mosaics that she does, and so we could use a few people, like to make some cookies and stuff, and maybe even uh, just be there as hosts, so contact Ashley. Can I throw that on you, Ashley? Like, if you'd like to be a part of that, um, do that. Okay, this text, I, I like this text so much because we live, uh, do you mind if I take a drink of water? We live in an outrage culture, don't we? Right now, we live in this outrage culture where people get angry and up in arms about, it seems like, almost everything, right? Whether it's significant or insignificant. And it seems like people argue with the same intensity over small matters and large matters. Um, things have just radically changed in our culture. It's, it's like you can't even say anything anymore without people nit nitpicking you. Um, I know we've all experienced that at some form. And we've lost in our culture the ability to respectfully engage with those with whom we disagree. So what about us as followers of Jesus? Are we to imbibe in the outrage culture? Are we to be argumentative people like so many in our culture are? Um, is this the way of Jesus? And I think this text uh, speaks to that, very much to that. And so I want to ask the question from Paul, so when is it okay to quarrel? When is it okay to quarrel? And I want to look at the first part of this scripture, if you don't mind. And that, just let me read that. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not be quarrelsome. That word quarrelsome, I mean, that's a pretty good word. It's really strong in the Greek. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about it. It's the same word used in James 4.1 where he writes that what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from, from the... The, the desires, those evil desires that battle within you. So from this text, just from these words, if I were to ask, what does Paul say? Are we to be an argumentative people? Uh, what's Paul's answer? What would it be? No, yeah, no, not at all. <coughs> Never. Verse 24, must not be quarrelsome. Must not be quarrelsome. And up in verse 23, don't have anything to do with that kind of thing. Don't have anything to do with it. Um, that, there's a lot of really strong... Greek words in this, that, that don't have anything to do with means to reject something outright. It's to refuse, to totally shun, to avoid at all costs. It's to have absolutely nothing to do with. So the NIV's really done a good job. And that, that verb is in the present tense, which in the Greek means 
This is an ongoing, continuous thing. So Paul's saying, make it your habit to refuse to either get started in or get involved or drug into quarrels. Um, avoid it like the plague. Steer clear of quarrels at all costs. That's what he's saying. Don't be argumentative people. Stay away. Avoid them at all costs. I'm curious, what do you avoid at all costs? Uh, for me, I thought about this, this this week. I avoid beats at all costs. Anybody with me on this one? Okay. I expected a lot more on that one. Yeah, Christy, we're, we're jiving on that. Uh, or how about this one? Liver. I hated liver as a kid. I still don't like it. I'm sure we have a few fans. Um, how, about, how about this? Snakes. Oh, yeah, I just heard a... Okay. Um, there's Mel. Mel and I... Mel, when he was a child, like, not attacked, but kind of was attacked by a green mamba. I mean, these are long snakes that are some of the most poisonous in the world in Ghana. So he has this... He's horrified of snakes. So two summers ago, we were on a hike in the Flint Hills, and we were on that gravel road. And he and I were up front with a group, and Mel, I'm sure you remember this, as we were walking, a rattlesnake came out of the grass and started crawling across the, the gravel. It was kind of late evening, and I think they were coming out to get warm, right? They'll get on the warm rocks. And he came out, and Mel had, ju had just passed. He came right behind Mel and right in front of me. And it wasn't that big. It, it kind of looks big there. He was, it, was kind of, it was an infant, probably only this long. But when I stepped up close to it, he immediately coiled. And I know a safe distance to stay from a coiled rattlesnake, but I, I stayed close. I got close enough, and I had my phone, and I zoomed in, and I was taking pictures. And then I looked up, and I said, Mel, look at this rattlesnake. And when I looked up, he was already 50 yards, like, running. <laughs> Mad dash. Uh, he had no interest. He was avoiding that at all costs. Uh, how about spiders? I just saw there's this new invasive species, this Asian spider I just read this week. They're huge, and they're down in the southeast. Um, that build these huge webs. How about like those acorn spiders? I don't know what to call them, but their backs, they look like acorns, almost I think like to trick birds, I'm not sure. But they tend to big, really build big, build big nests like across doorways or entryways or in the most inconvenient, like I'll park my truck at night by a sign and then I'll come out to get something out of my truck and you can't see, but they built one of those like between. There was one time I ran into one of those, a huge nest, I mean not we a web, and I mean, that acorn snake was so big, and I, I went right through it, and he ended up right here on me. <laughs> I was like dancing and stuff, I don't know, till I got him off. It would have been really funny. Um, I grew up in western Kansas where there's a lot of wolf spiders. I almost didn't put that other picture up. I thought, that's, the kids are going to be here. That's really scary looking. But there's a lot of wolf spiders in western Kansas, and they're pretty big. And I don't see them in eastern Kansas hardly ever. So I came home the other day, and I opened the door to our entryway, and there in the very middle of our entryway was a wolf spider. And I haven't seen one in so long. I'd kind of forgotten about him. And for a brief minute in my brain, it was a tarantula. <laughs> so I, I jumped back out the door. Thankfully, we, <laughs> we had a broom right outside in the porch, so I grabbed it, and I whacked that guy. Like uh, uh, It really startled me. So, I mean, whatever the things are that you avoid at all costs, Paul is saying in being argumentative, you avoid it at all costs at all costs. And I want you to know Paul is serious. He's really serious about this command. And this is all in Timothy and Titus. In 1 Timothy 2.8, he says, I want men and everywhere to, everywhere to pray, lifting up their hands in a holy manner without anger and arguments, the same word. Titus, that's in this text we're reading, Titus 3.12, remind the believers to, be, to submit to government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone, and they must avoid quarreling. 
Same, tech, same verb, everything. It's told of spiritual leaders that in the church that he must not like to fight, but rather must be gentle and peaceable. In 1 Corinthians 3.3, we just read some of the text from 1 Corinthians 3.3, a church that had a lot of divisions. He said this, as long as there's jealousy and quarreling among you, there's that same word, you are worldly and you're living by human standards. And then the text I shared with the children, Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining and arguing. Um, and I didn't go to those, sorry. And then in Romans 14.19, he says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. So Paul specifically quarrels about what? And um, in the text, if you look, it's what he calls, um, it's what he calls fruit foolish, if you look in verse 23, foolish and stupid arguments. I mean, don't you just love Paul? He doesn't ever hold back. He just says what he thinks, right? Arguments, they're just foolish and they're stupid. I love Paul. Um, that word, interestingly, um, in Greek, that word for, um, for arguments is actually probably better translated speculations. It refers to topics of conversation that are trifling, that are little, and that have insufficient evidence. So there's not a lot of evidence, and they're very small and trifling. So in this context, in this letter specifically, in these two letters, he's talking about matters on which the Bible says very little is unclear or is totally silent. That's what he's talking about, matters that are insignificant. They're insignificant. Fruitless discussions are quibbling over minor doctrinal uh, or details in the Bible that really have no bearing on salvation, that have no bearing on the essentials of the faith, that have no bearing on how do I live my life to follow Jesus well, ethically. Um, controversial matters that are disputed upon which faithful, many faithful believers might disagree. Matters that just don't deserve our time and energy. Um, you guys, let me give you some examples. I, I'm sure you've heard this. After I became a believer, I had heard in the Middle Ages, theologians would sit around and debate how many angels could fit on the head of a pen. Have you heard that one? That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about, things that are speculative, and they would sit and argue about that. Um, interestingly, when I was in Bible college, it seemed like that was really common. There's two things that came to mind this week. I remember sitting in a class for a whole hour. People were debating which rib did God take to create Eve. And I remember sitting there like, what? who cares? What does it matter? There was one guy who so strongly was convinced it was the fifth rib on the right side, and he had reasons for it. And, um, or at the time in a class, there was this debate on what was the fruit that Adam and Eve ate. Was it an apple? There was a guy who really strongly felt like it was grape. Somebody thought it was pomegranate. Um, and again, I was like, I mean, like, what's it matter? In 1 Timothy 6.20, Paul talks about arguments about those kinds of things. He calls them arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Um, and this must have been going on a lot in these churches that Timothy was, was working with in the Titus. Because in 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul says that this quarreling about words, he said it's of no value. In 2 Timothy 2.16, I like the God's World translation that's where he says, avoid pointless discussions. He calls these arguments... As I went through these texts, four times he refers to these kinds of arguments as useless. Four times. Three times, outside of the one time he says they're foolish in this text, three other times, he talks about these other men's arguments are foolish. And in Titus 3.9, he says that they're worthless. But more than that, arguments over these like small things are damaging to the body. Um, in 1 Timothy 1.4, he says that quibbling over minor and important issues, it does not help God's work, and it only brings arguments. That's all it does. He says in 2 Timothy 2.14 that it ruins those who listen. And in 2 Timothy 2.16 that it only leads people farther away from God. 
So Paul's really serious about this. And as I read it, I just thought, let us, as a body, let us be careful that we major on the majors and we minor on the minors, okay? Because a lot of people in those churches, they were, minor, they were majoring on minors. So let us put things in proper perspective. And those minor things, just let them be. Stay away from them. So I was thinking this week, how do I know what those minor things are? I mean, it's one thing to say that. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we're going to do a series on Christian liberty. Maybe next year. I'm still, I was working on the calendar a little over a week ago. I'm not sure when. But a lot of people who talk about like levels of doctrinal belief of importance have put them into four tiers. And I'm just going to show you this very briefly. They have what they call the essentials, which are things related to orthodoxy, things essential for salvation, um, essential commands in relation to living well, living a holy life. And the essentials are things like the, the God is the creator, that there's one God who exists in three persons, the Trinity, that Jesus is divine, that, it, that I am saved only by my faith in Jesus' atonement that Jesus rose from the dead, that he will come again, that the Bible is the word of God, the inspired word of God. Those are those essential things. Or that the raiders are evil and nobody should ever root for them, right? That falls in that category, does it not? Gary, do you not agree? Yeah, amen. Can I get an amen from that? Tier number two is convictions. These are generally larger issues, um, and frequently these are about things related to, to like church governance and church structure, baptism, the Lord's Supper, um, some of that kind of stuff. They're important issues, and because they are kind of big, important issues, they're worth having dialogue about. Then you get into tier three, which is conscience. And this would be my per personal point of view on minor doctrinal issues. It's my preferred interpretation, where there might be five or six interpretations. Um, it's also my conscience, specifically on things that I do in my own life and practice that the Scripture doesn't really talk about. And am I free under the whole, have I been given freedom in the spirit to do that or not? So it's kind of issues that relate to Christian liberty. And then finally, there's that tier four, which is opinions and preferences. And these are matters that are purely speculative, um, that are simply my personal preference. So things like, which translation do I use? Um, what is my preference in music? Those, to me, fall in that fourth tier. Or things like Chiefs and Broncos, uh, vanilla or chocolate, right? Or I know somebody who's really big on Neapolitan. Um, I always ate the vanilla out of the Neapolitan. Thankfully, my brothers were chocolate guys, so it worked. Coke or Pepsi, Mr. Pibb or Dr. Pepper. My daughter tells me Mr. Pibb is like, no way. Uh, Jordan disagrees. NBA or college basketball um, is a really a debate on that. I mean, it's college basketball, right? I hope Ian's watching. Ian, it's college basketball, not NBA. That's better. But anyways, that's, that's what some of those tiers are. But here's what... I want to emphasize this. Paul is saying we should not argue or quarrel about anything, period. We shouldn't argue or quarrel about anything. But these bottom tiers are especially the kind of things that Paul is talking about in this text. Count Zizendorf, who was the founder of the Moravians, and was, that was the first group that really the start of the modern missions movement in the 1700s was the Moravians. This was their creed, and I love this creed. It's the creed of um, the evangelical free church has taken this. I think the Christian churches have taken this on. And this is what he said, in the essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, that we give each other the freedom to have our views in non-essentials, in all things, charity, agape, love, that in everything we treat each other with love. Um, I love that creed. I find it interesting that Paul uses two words to describe these kinds of arguments about speculative things. In verse 3, he calls them foolish. It's the Greek word moros. The, you, you know an English word that, that, may, that may have come from that? 
moron or moronic, okay? He says they're moronic, they're foolish. And when we think of foolish, we tend to think of like somebody that's maybe doesn't have it all together up here. They quite don't know. I don't know that. But I, I want to say that in the Bible that um, this word foolish is very much connected to the heart and character, a deficiency in the heart and character. And in the Bible, anytime you see the word fool, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's talking about that there is a sin deficiency that's underneath their folly, their foolishness. So it's a really, really strong word. Um, and in my mind, there's two kinds of fools. There are the contentious and the contrarian, as I thought about this week. The contentious are people that are combative, right? They like to just say things to get people riled up. They like to stir the pot. Um, there aren't many of these, but there are people who just like to be difficult. They like to cause trouble. They really like to cause dissension. Um, and sometimes they can be really good at making look like they're just having a little bit of fun with it. But the truth is, is they get a lot of joy out of pushing people's buttons. Um, many times these people really underneath have an ax to grind, and that's why they're so contentious or combative. And then there's the contrarians. These are people who don't really want answers to their questions. They don't really want to come to the truth. They just want to debate and argue, right? Um, they like to be the maverick. They like to be different. Um, they like to take the opposite point of view to play the devil's advocate. That's just what they love to do. They may even argue against a position that, that actually you find out later that they hold. But either way, the contentious and the contrarian are people they, who, they like to argue. And probably their motto would be this, I'm often wrong, but I'm never in doubt. Often wrong, but I'm never in doubt. That's why Solomon says of these people, this is a profound scripture to me, of these kind of people in Proverbs 18.2. He says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Is that not powerful? Only expressing his opinion. Another translation says they delight in airing their own opinions. That's what combative and, con and contrarian type people are. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 4, and 5. I find this a powerful scripture. He says, there are people who are sick with a love for arguing and fighting about words, and they're full of pride and understand nothing. Is that not a strong statement to make about those people? And then second, the second word he uses, foolish, is the word stupid. The word stupid. Again, Paul is so fun. Um, Vincent, who has a famous Greek, who does famous Greek word studies, he says that this word refers to an undisciplined or untrained mind that is carried away with novelties. That's the key. They're carried away with novelties. They like getting in the doctrinal weeds of things that really don't matter. That's what they like to get into those weeds. And this is a this is not such a harsh word as foolish. These are people who probably just don't know better. Um, but the topics of conversation they tend to go toward are, I'd said earlier, they're matters in which the Bible says very little or the Bible is unclear or the Bible is silent. Discussions on minor details that in the long run don't matter and it can frequently end in quarrels. Okay, so we're clear. Argumentative should people who follow Jesus be argumentative? No, right? Flee it, run away like you run away from snakes or spiders or beets or liver. So what's the alternative, Paul? And the alternative is in verses 24, where he says, but, and that's a really strong but in Greek, really strong, but rather than argue, he says, we must. So he uses the word must again. He's used it before in verse 23. Um, and he uses it here twice. We must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. 
kind to everyone. There's two Greek words in here I, I love and I want you to say them. It doesn't matter, but just to have fun. The word for kind is epios. Can you say epios with me? Epios. Okay. It's a person who's kind and gentle. It's the opposite of somebody that's harsh and irritable. Um, there is only one other place in the New Testament that the word epios is used. Only one other place. And it's by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, where he's talking about his ministry among the Thessalonians. And here's what he says. We proved to be gentle, to be epios among you, as a nursing motherly, mother tenderly cares for her own children. Is that not a powerful image? That's what epios means. Somebody like a mother, how she tenderly cares for her children. That's what an epios person is like. So we're to be kind. And to be kind to who? Who do we be kind to? Everyone. Which means only those who agree with me, only those who have all the same doctrinal stances I have, right? Only everybody who has exactly the same political views that I have. Those are the only people that I'm to be kind to, right? I mean, no, right. No. Everyone means everyone. It means all do you remember in August um, when Jordan and I talked about how we're to interact with the world in Romans 12, 18, Paul says, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. That's his command. And then he says, not only be kind, epios, but we're to be able to teach because there is a teaching function in the body. Scripture talks about we should know how to admonish each other, to talk to each other, about the, to bring the truth to bear. There are legitimate questions and issues in the Bible, right? There are legitimate things to talk about. There are important biblical issues. There are weighty, big matters. There's nothing wrong having a, a kind discussion and dialogue about those things and also being able to go to the Scripture and to teach people. But if we do so in 2 Timothy 5, 2.15, Paul says that we do it in a way that we know, what we know how to correctly handle the truth. So make sure if you're teaching people that you know how to correctly handle the word of truth. And then he says, not resentful. So being kind to everybody, able to teach, not resentful. Literally, holding back under bad or evil. That's what the word literally means. It speaks to the ability to endure difficulties without becoming angry or upset. A good English word for this would be long-suffering. That it's to put up with, to patiently forbear, to tolerate evil without resentment. This word means that I'm able to keep my cool. I'm able to keep my cool. So I guess the question that comes up then is, so Paul, do I ever contend for the truth? And that's what verses 25 and 26 are about. I mean, of course, in 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul says, protect the truth that you were given. So yeah, I do contend for the truth. So look at verses 25 and 26 where he says, opponents must be gently instructed. And I just want to stop there. Opponents must be gently instructed. So there is this, this need to bring truth. But the question is, is who are the opponents he's talking about? And I want to be really clear on this because I think the context, I don't think I'm the context is really important here. And please, anytime you read part of handling the Word of God with, with um, accurately, the way Paul says, is context is king. It's always important. And here's the context. When Paul's writing to Timothy, he gives him the purpose of his, his two letters, and here it is. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, how to conduct ourselves in the household in here, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So these opponents that he's talking about aren't people outside of these walls. The opponents he's talking about are people who are inside of the church. And we have a pretty good idea of who two of them were and, and likely a third, that there were Judaizers, there were people who came from a Jewish background who were trying to convince Gentiles they had to keep the law to truly be saved. 
that were in those churches um, in Ephesus. We also know that there were early Gnostics who were in there. I'm not going to go into what they were. They were kind of taking, these were, this would have been Gentile believers who were taking Greek philosophy and trying to bring it into Scripture. And the other thing we, we are pretty sure from 1 Timothy chapter 2 is there were people who had come out of the Diana worship in Ephesus and who were bringing some of their teaching from that into the church. So those are probably the three groups that Paul's talking about. But again, these were false teachers that were inside the church, okay? These opponents were inside the church. That's who he's talking about. And I love how he adds, he says, so we should instruct them, if I were to, let's see if I can come back to that, that we're to instruct them, and I love the word he adds, he says, do so gently. Because how you disagree is just as important as what you disagree about, right? How you disagree is just as important. That word gentle is one of my very favorite Greek words. It's the Greek word praus. Can you say praus with me? Praus. Praus was used of a wild stallion that was broken and had become tame. And it's frequently translated gentle or meek. And a lot of people assume in our modern day when they hear like the word gentle or meek, they assume weakness is part of that. But the truth is, is the word refers to a stallion that's been brought under the control of an owner, of a master, and it actually denotes great strength that's under control. So it's a gentleness, but it has this great strength that underlies it. And this is a really significant word, this word prowse, because it's, it's a word Jesus used to describe himself. Did you know Jesus only described himself one time? In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where he said, I am gentle, I'm prowse, I have great strength that's under control, and I am humble in spirit. And I love how he ties those two together. The gentleness, the prowse, and humility belong together. Here's what a commentator, one commentator said about prowse. I really like this. He said, first, it includes actively seeking to make others feel at ease or restful in our presence. We should not be so strongly opinionated or dogmatic that others are afraid to express their opinions in our presence. Instead, we should be sensitive to others' opinions and ideas. Second, gentleness will demonstrate respect for the personal dignity of the person. So respect. Third, gentleness will avoid blunt speech in an abrupt manner, instead seeking to answer everyone with sensitivity and respect, ready to show consideration toward all. Fourth, a joint gentle Christian will not feel threatened by opposition or he resent those who oppose him. And finally, the gentle Christian will not degrade or belittle or gossip about the brother who falls into some sin or has wrong teaching. Instead, he will grieve for him and pray for his repentance. And this, this gentleness is important to Paul in these letters too. In, first, in Titus 3, 1 and 2, he says, Believers should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They should not slander anyone. They must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be prouse. They should be gentle and show true humility to everyone, tying the two things together that are true of Jesus. Again, he said that church leaders in 1 Timothy 3, 3 should, be, should not like to fight, but rather be prouse, gentle, and peaceable. In 1 Timothy 6, 11, he says, live in the right way, serve God, have faith, love, patience, and what? Gentleness, prouse, have prouse. He talks about gentleness in other letters. In Galatians 5, 23, where he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, prouse, and self-control. Or in Colossians 3, where he says, Therefore is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, right? Prouse, and patience. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So when we do instruct somebody in the body 
who is misguided, maybe following down a false teaching path, we do so. Ephesians 4, 15, we speak the truth in love. In Colossians 4, 6, our conversation should always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. In the words of Peter, we should speak with gentleness, with prowess, and with respect. And we instruct generally the reason we do that is because we're not, we're dealing, we're not dealing with an issue or a problem or a, a doctrine. We're dealing with a person, and so we treat them with gentleness and respect, right? The goal is not to win an argument ever. It's to win a brother. So that's the reason this gentleness is so important. And then what's the end game, Paul? So if there's an opponent, somebody in the body who's following false teaching, and I, I instruct them, I do it with gentleness, the end game is three things, he says. One, in the hope that God will grant them repentance. Metanoia is the Greek word. It means a change of mind. Give them a change of mind that leads them to a knowledge of the truth. I love that word knowledge in the Greek. It's not just intellectual knowledge. It's experiential, personal, relational knowledge. That not just to, to know what's true, but to love what's true and, and to come to the one who is true, right? Because what God created us for is a what? What he created us for? A relationship, right? It's a very relational word. Second, that they'll come to their senses. In the Greek, that means to, to awake from a stupor or from a deep sleep. He wants them to, to come to their senses. And in so doing, number three, that he will escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. <coughs> Sorry. Again, in all of this, we're gentle. In all of this, we're gentle. We are kind and gentle because of this. I think it's so important to remember we are not in a fight with people. All right? Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I want you to know if a person has flesh and blood, and I don't know anybody that doesn't have flesh and blood, right, that's a person. If a person has flesh and blood, let us always remember they are not the enemy. The enemy is who? It's Satan. Satan is the enemy. He is the one who blinds, who takes people captive, who seeks to devour and destroy. He is the enemy. And so in all of our instructing with people inside of this body, if we feel like it's a big issue and it's important, we do so with gentleness because we want to be pe see people set free from him. That's the end, end game. It's correcting a false teacher within the body to get them in the right track. And as one commentator put it, for this task, a spirit of gentleness is indispensable. So 12th, what about us? What about us? I want to tell you something I've always respected about this church. When we came here in 1990, there was a lot of conflict going on, for those of you who were back then. It was not fun. Business meetings were, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I want you to know, since Al came, that I think this body should be commended because we have not been the kind of body that Paul's talking about here. We've not been that kind of body. And so I just want to give us all the challenge. Let's keep it that way, okay? Because that's what it means to follow Jesus, and that's what Paul tells us to be like. Let us take up as our creed, that Moravian creed, that in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Let that be the creed here at 12th. Or to take upon our lips the prayer of Martin Luther, who said, from frivolous, fruitless controversies, good Lord, deliver us. Is that not a good prayer? Can you pray that with me? From frivolous, fruitless controversies, good Lord, 
Deliver us. Deliver us. So just a few questions. Even in every good group, there are always going to be some individuals. Melissa talked about relationships aren't easy, right? There's always going to be people that are quarrelsome. They're combative, that are contentious. There's always going to be contrarians. So I just want to ask you that question. Are you a contentious person? Are you a contrarian? Do you love engaging in conversations about minor speculative things in the Bible? That's worth asking. And then the other thing I'd like to ask is, how are you doing in those other traits? Are you able to teach? Do you know the word well enough? I'm so glad we're going to the New Testament together. Do you know the word well enough that if there is false teaching in the body, you know how to, if somebody you care about, you know how to talk to them about it? Um, How are we doing on that not resentful one? How are we doing on kindness, on epios? Treating people like a nursing mother, her baby. How are you doing with that gentle spirit, that prowess, that amazing strength that's under control? that shows itself in gentleness. This is also crucial because our Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ, said this. He said, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you what? If you love one another. If you love one another. So 12, I commend you. Let's just keep up the good work. Would you stand with me? Can we sing this song again? This was one of the first songs I learned when I was a new follower of Jesus. Gosh, back in the the late 70s. And uh, you need to help me, okay? Because I'm not going to sing very well today. So sing loud. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity will one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other. We will walk hand in hand. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand, and together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. No, we are Christians by our love, by our love. No, we are Christians by our love. And they'll know love by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this body. Thank you that this has been a place of, of love and of grace and of, of that epios, that kindness, of that prowess, of that gentleness. Lord, Help us to always be watchful and to contend for the truth on matters that are important and that we're we're willing to do that within our body. Um, But just help us to be people that those lower tier of things that we're just, we we have our beliefs, we have our preferences, but we just leave those things alone. We let sleeping dogs lie. Just help us to continue to be that kind of people. Thank you for your word, for how practical it is. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. K-12, you're sent.